Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Look, we have a full program, so I only have 40 seconds to tell you what's in it. First of all, our, our guest is Alison Gaines, co-founder of WEOC on dedication to writing and more. Uh, we talk about the mainstream reporter who finally comes out and says something about that verdict in in uh, Wisconsin. We talk about big formers attack on all of us. We talk about an economic system that is not working for us and exactly why. We talk about the real dangers of the, the verdict in Kenosha. We bring in Paul Gosor, that evil person who attempted to malign, to kill uh, AOC. And, of course, we have a message from Donny Deutsch, uh, somebody I'm not completely fond of, but he has some great information and message that I suggest the Democrats uh, heed. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. So without further ado, you know what I'm going to tell you guys. Let's get busy. Whenever the government says, I am going to give to the private sector a service that once was done by the government because it's more efficient, it is a lie, a complete lie. It is a manner of transferring your wealth to the rich, to the shareholders, and another way to cut the pay of those who actually do the work. All right? Let's remember that. But I want you to listen to this why I say the economic system is a fraud, and then I'll tie those two together. It is important that we get it. It is important that we see it. Check it out here. 
Deirdre, I want to start with you. People are struggling. You heard them struggling there, heading into the holiday. The White House has said this is a transitory problem, but is it more fundable, fun, fundamental? Is this going to stick around? Well, Martha, from your excellent report, I mean, we saw with those families, I mean, it's everything. It's food, it's gasoline, this 30-year high. So for them, it feels fundamental. It feels basic because it is. In speaking with economist Gregory Dacko is one of note at Oxford Economics, he does say in the next 12 months that pricing pressures should begin to come down. The logic being that some of these supply chain issues that we've been hit so hard with will begin to mitigate and that is going to take down some of the pricing pressure. But in the near term, for the next six months, let's face it, we are all going to pay more for everything. Rent, food, gasoline, the next six months is belt tightening and it's a difficult time of year for a lot of people who would like to enjoy the holidays with their families. And, and Diane, I know that the pandemic takes a lot of the blame here, but how did it really get so bad? Supply chain, obviously, but how did it get to this point where that package of meat went from $18 to $30? Yeah, no, it's really a demand surge, which is one aspect of it. First of all, inflation is global in scope. It's not just happening here, but it's a demand surge. It was during the Delta wave. The supply chain disruptions got even worse because of that. So even though we slowed down our spending, which should have cooled off inflation a bit, we actually saw we started spending more on goods again. And in that process, with the disruptions we saw through the Delta wave around the world, further disrupting supply chains, that further pushed up prices. And then we've got this perverse labor issue. We've got an, a pandemic. People are afraid to come back to work. There's still people on the sidelines. Yet there's wages are going up, but there's shortages. And it's it's a really all of the above situation. It's very complex. It's very it, there's no precedence for what we're going through. And even though inflation, I, it will get worse before it gets better, and it will eventually abate one way or the other. Another is that the Fed will raise rates. And I think the risk is though is that we've got some lingering in things like shelter costs. Rents are going up very, very rapidly that are still going to burn even after this cools down a bit. And that's what the Fed will end up having to worry about. And, and, and let's, let's talk long term here. We've been on this kind of just in time manufacturing system. No overhead costs are there less than they were before. Uh, there are glitches in the system. Obviously, if, the, if a chip doesn't come through, the whole line breaks down. So do we need to look at a more exactly. resilient system? Deirdre, can you take this one? Uh, of course, we sure do. This is a big, furry mess. And the whole irony of just in time was that it was built to be more efficient. And we are now seeing the exact opposite of that. So we and, and Diane, finally, is there any advice you would give to consumers right now? Well, you know, what we're doing is we're going to be going through a very hard period. And if there's things that you can delay, I actually think there's because of the issues we're seeing from just in time to just in case inventories, we're going to see a building of inventories by 2023. If you don't need to buy a car right now, wait it out. If you don't need to buy some of those other things that are goods that people have spent so much on, if you can wait it out a little bit, we're going to see some discounting on the other side of this, which makes it more of a boom bust cycle. But it is, you know, being able to pace yourself in terms of what you really need. There's also a lot of people selling some things that they got during the pandemic on things like Craigslist. Imagine that. Now, what they've just told you is they've just told you, by the way, these are capitalist, real high level capitalists. These three, these two women and the, the who the, the host represents. 
there are these big time capitalists who believe, believe in all this crap that the, the economic system, which is a fraud, of course, but they believe it. And they just told you the economic system is a fraud. We are so indoctrinated that even when being told that it's a ripoff, we don't get it. Let me explain. She talks about, uh, she finally admits and say, they used to talk about the efficiency of the private sector, the efficiency of just-in-time inventory, and it has proven to be false. It didn't take a rocket scientist to say that. We always knew that. But they, are, they, 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 they now have a supply chain issue. They try to peg it on the government. But no, it's a failure of the private sector trying to maximize and take away your, your, your income, the corporate sector, I prefer to say, because I don't want to, go, I don't want to put the pizza shop and the small grocer into the same category uh, as the corporate frauds that we have here. So we always know it was a lie. Then they says, okay, all you have to do right now is don't shop. Let the suckers pay that high price that these people are paying right now. Don't shop. That's what she says. Don't shop. And then after the suckers buy the stuff and the supply chain says, I'm still making the same amount of money by selling these things to these suckers. I'll bring in more product later so that all the other people who would not buy at the ridiculous prices would buy. They are telling you, they are telegraphing to you that the economic system is a fraud. You notice at the end she said it's a boom and bust cycle. And guess who always get busted? You do. Not the corporate sector. When they're about to lose money, they lay the people off and they keep the executives populated with money. They get paid to lay you off and they get paid to bring you back in. Now, I want to address something that somebody says here. My brother, conservative Lee Grant, because he makes a very important point. Brother Lee Grant said the following, and it's so important. I must talk about it. Uh, what did he say? Did he say, Egberto? Come on, Lee. I need to find Lee Grant says, Egberto. By your logic, we do well to transfer all the private sector to the public sector, all the private sector to the public sector. That would look a lot like communism. False. I don't want all the private sector to the public sector. I don't want that pizza shop to be run by the government. I, the pizza shop is a joy. You take your kids out to the to, to the to the to the public parks. You take your kid. I mean, to the private parks. You take your kid to get a sandwich, a hamburger. All of that belongs in the private sector. But things like healthcare, things like fuel, things like electricity, things that we depend on, that everybody use as a society, does not belong in the pub in the private sector. You know why? Because it can be manipulated. If I break a leg, I can say. I don't feel like fixing my leg today. I'm going to wait till the price of fixing the leg drops. I can't do that. The capitalist market belong in a very select area where it doesn't matter, where it really can be, where it can really be a free market. You cannot have a free market on things you must have. You can have a free market in things you can choose to have. And that is where People don't understand. That is why Medicare Advantage is the biggest fraud. We are paying for the demise of Medicare by supporting Medicare Advantage because we decide to pay more for, we decide to give the private sector more to support uh, Medicare Advantage than we give the public sector to support plain old Medicare. All right? It's a fraud. 
it's a fraud. But the problem is we don't have enough people talking about it as a fraud. Danny Deutsch. I usually don't like Danny Deutsch. But Danny Deutsch sometimes have some damn good advice for Democrats. And I think this is one of those days. I listened to him as he spoke today and I said, Danny, 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 I think good advice. Check this out. Stop making the economy an abstract thing and make it about how are you doing? So, Donnie, we, we've had enough conversations and I've now covered um, Democrats long enough to understand that even with facts on their side, sometimes they end up on lo- losing an argument when they have sort of the, 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 the right answer. They have the right facts. They have the good intentions to do right by the people that they serve. How do you make sure that doesn't happen on this all important question of who's worried about your personal economy? Did you just call the Democrats weenies? Because I think you did. I did not. Um, I, I did not. <laughs> let, me, let me also here. I'll put it the. I'll turn I'm kidding, this around. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, as a, no, but I'm no, kidding. That's, it's kidding. actually a good point. Republicans rarely have the facts on their side, and they can manage to yeah. fight Democrats to a draw. Democrats, yeah. in all the times we've been on these conversations, have all the facts on their side, and and they're losing on these questions yeah. of the economy put an economic SWAT team together. You know, Biden can only do so much. You know, Biden is not this great communicator at this point. Whether you love him or not, he's just not. I would deputize six governors, six senators, six congressmen, six local state assembly, but get a team of 20 to 24 people who are just on message pounding the facts. Don't, you know, really, we, we, we it shouldn't be on the president. So whoever you deputize, take Hakeem Jeffries, uh, take the governor of this state, take 24 of your most telegenic across the board politicians, get them in a room, say, guys, this is your message. You are carrying the torch. You are one of the, the chosen 24, if you will, and basically have the Democrats send them out everywhere. Create a team. Don't just leave it to Biden. Unfortunately, Biden right now is not the great communicator. Flies above the Yes, Biden is not the great communicator. Actually, I don't think Biden is actually that bad of a communicator. I just think the, the party in general don't understand narrative. So I don't want to blame this all on Biden at all because the, the bad communication didn't start with Biden. Look, we had somebody like President Obama, one of the best orators we've seen. We've had Bill Clinton, another, another very good orator. And then we had Donald Trump, Bush number one, Bush number two, three horrendous orators that spent a total of 16 years in office. Obama spent eight, Clinton spent eight, and of course, we don't know what Biden is going to do. But we had two of the best. Reagan was a very good communicator. We also had, but, but Clinton and Obama, and of course, Obama bar none, great communicators, and then they get fuzzed with what the democratic spineology is going to be, meaning they have to keep the corporate at bay or keep the corporate somehow, uh, you know, salted, weathered, greased or whatever you want to call it. So what can I say? Reporters, I think a lot of times we stay in the state that we're in because we don't tell the truth. And I think if we started telling the truth about how things happen, right? People would get the opportunity to change. 
So I want to play this little piece by a reporter, mainstream reporter. And the reason I'm playing it is I was happy to hear a mainstream reporter and a black one at that say this. So here we go. Byron, in this trial, all involved in the case were white. Rittenhouse, the men who died. But this case intensified the debate over racial justice and the legal system itself. Martha, it's absolutely true. And for many people, it's not a debate. It's a cold, hard reality that in America, there's one justice system. If you're white and wealthy, there is another if you are poor and a person of color. Study after study shows that black men are arrested more often, uh, convicted more often and sentenced to longer sentences than white men accused of the same crime. And the same is holds true in discipline in schools, that disparity. And Martha, here's a here's a study, I I think, that, that speaks to this case and the concerns about this case. According to the FBI, a, uh, a fatal shooting in, where the, uh, the, 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 the shooter is, is white and the victim is black, three times more likely that's ruled to be justifiable if, the, if both parties were, were, um, were white. And so I think for most reasonable people, and most surveys would bear this out, that few people, reasonable people would believe that if a 17-year-old black boy with an AR-15 showed up in Kenosha, Wisconsin at night, killed two people and injured a third, that that black boy would have been treated the same way by police or by the legal justice system. Um, anybody want to make a guess? Anybody? Daniel Ado, would you like to make a guess? Would you like to give a possibility? I want to stop there because I've got a story to tell. Because this is how dangerous this type of verdict is, right? We all know that this criminal justice system in America is not a fair criminal justice system. We all know that there's a, a definite bias against people of color. That's not debatable. You look at the sentences that, that, that comes down relative to equal crime. And what what the results are, all of that is different. But this has a more sinister effect. And I must tell you a, a, a story. Everybody remember Michael Brown getting murdered in uh, in uh, St. Louis or the, the suburb of St. Louis, uh, that town. All right. Um, I went out there to Netroots Nation uh, with quite a few other people, including a few uh, a few Congress people. In fact, let me name drop one. I went out there with um, Nina Turner to the spot where he lied dead for several hours. And we, after visiting his spot, we had a march. We had the Netroots Nation had a march. We were going to march against the police departments in St. Louis and the areas and the justice system because of the manner in which people of color are treated. So that's what we did. Ferguson, thank you for reminding me, ABQ, Ferguson. It was Ferguson we drove. Ferguson is right next to St. Louis. So we went, we, we took a, we took a uh, Uber to Ferguson, me, Nina Turner, and a couple other people. And uh, we then marched on the freeway. We closed down the freeway in St. Louis, you know, the one that goes to the park. And I'm there video that you could probably some see some of the videos that I that I saw there. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to wrap this story and tell you why I'm telling you this story. So we are all marching Netroots Nation, this big, huge, all the liberal bloggers, liberal politician, progressive uh, storytellers, all of us were in, 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 in uh, St. Louis at this convention. And we 
left the convention, the Black Lives Matter came to the convention and said, you guys come out here every year, you're all over the place, when, and you stand up for these issues, let's see you stand up for real. And they came to and opened all the doors of the conferences in St. Louis and drug us out there based on the moral direction that they knew we should be taking. And we all marched down that avenue. We all marched to the freeway and we stopped it. And Black Lives Matter had a plan. Netroots Nation, in as much as it's a progressive organization, it is a mostly white organization. And while we are shutting down the freeways, we have the leaders of Black Lives Matter leading this humongous group of people. And then the police cars are rushing down on the wrong side of the freeway because we have probably a thousand people standing up on that overpass, closing down the freeway, and the police cars are rushing there. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, I came to St. Louis to get arrested or get beat up by the cops. And you know what's going to happen now, you know? Black Lives Matter made the call, and I think I have this one on video too. It says, white, they said, white allies, come lock the front. And all the white folks came around us, the Black Lives Matter crew, they all came around. And they locked hands, and the police officers all stopped. And... They, they gave us passageway off of the ramp, off of the freeway in St. Louis, and we marched on. And I'm, I'm in shock now. I'm next to the Huffington Post reporter, and she's looking at me, and I'm, I'm looking at her like, wow, you know. But that is what, that's what happened. So the idea being, they use their privilege. Our, bro- our white brothers and sisters use their privilege then as a protection mechanism for the Black Lives Matters, who the police officers were coming to crack skulls, okay? But what does this stuff here shows? This is interesting. Because the two, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rittenhouse or Rittenhouse or whatever the hell his name is. He comes, and he comes to a Black Lives Matter march or a march against police brutality, injustice, and he shoots two people, but the two people he shoots are white. So all of us in, 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 the, in the social justice movement, in the racial justice movement, in all of these movements, we sit here and we believe, we think, wow, this is going to be a test case. This is going to be a test case. I don't know. Right now I'm seeing the video in sync. Anybody else sees the video out of sync, let me know. But anyhow, we're looking and we see this is a test case. Anyhow, what happens? Rittenhouse goes to trial and not on the lower ones, not on the higher charges. He is set free. He didn't commit a crime. Why? The allies, the, 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 white, the white brothers that were killed, our white allied brothers that were killed, they were fighting for the wrong, they were fighting for the wrong cause. They were fighting for the wrong cause. So when I see this, I see this as an alliance buster. 
Because whereas many of these protesters, whereas many of these protesters I'm talking about are white allies coming to protest social justice issues, racial justice issues. Whereas many of them are coming saying, you know what, at least we can use our privilege against the cops to help our brethren that is constantly being attacked, demoralized, slammed, held, uh, skulls cracked by the police officers. We are there. We will use our whiteness to protect them. What, what the police officers have done is they have granted license to the white supremacists to say, get in there and bust and crack heads for anyone who's supporting the social justice movement. I want you guys, I mean, you see, you're not going to hear this on TV, right? You're not going to hear this on TV. Because what they're going to say is, oh, there were so many different problems in the case. There were issues hard to prove. That is hogwash. We know if it were vice versa, if it were vice versa, we know exactly what the results would be. I am not sure why the out of sync. I only have 161 drop packets at this very high speed. So I'm concerned that that, uh, of that, 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 but it'll be cleaned up. When we um, when I do the repost of the of the videos, so people, brothers and sisters that are listening to me, that is the danger of this verdict. The danger of this verdict is that our white allies, whereas they could use their privilege to assist those who real, there are many who will realize their privilege has no privilege when doing social justice, racial justice work. They will realize that because the supremacists now have license to kill. And it doesn't matter. They don't mind killing anyone. They don't mind killing whether the person looks like me or whether the person looks like Brother AVQ. They don't care anymore. We just have to kill. We just have to kill. That's the name of the game. That is the name of the game. So understand why this has, you know, where, where they are talking about the legalities. Oh, uh, they didn't, you know, uh, whether the other guy lift up a pistol or, 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 or whether uh, he thought somebody was charging him. The guy went to a protest with an AR-15. He went there with a murderous device to kill. Please don't tell me about how innocent this little kid is. This guy went and started talking to supremacists and the Proud Boys and all of that. Please don't tell me how nice and sweet this kid was. Please don't. Let's not, let's not fool ourselves. Let's play Gosor and then I'll come and finish up, wrap it all up. So let's go to Gosor. Here is Tim Gosar. Paul Gosar's brother will talk about his brother's lack of intellect, his brother's lack of morality, his brother's lack of honestidad. Tim Gosar, brother of Congressman Paul Gosar. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Uh, what what was it like for you yesterday watching your brother censured by the House of Representatives? 
Good evening, Lawrence. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, appropriate. I mean, I think the conduct and what's happened fits the crime and the punishment fit. Uh, so um, it was appropriate, uh, disappointing that he's pushed things this far and he's become this unhinged. But uh, the censure was totally appropriate. So we saw him on the House floor yesterday afternoon say out of compassion, he deleted the tweet that the video was in. And then, as your sister pointed out here last night, after the vote, after he was censured, he then retweeted it, in effect, tweeted the video once again. And then a few hours after that, uh, after your sister mentioned it here, he then deleted it again. What are we watching there? What is happening to that man as he goes through that day doing those things? He has no regard for Speaker Pelosi, the rule of law, or the House norms and uh, customs. Um, He believes um, in the cult of Trump, and that is the true leader of this country. He's one of Trump's fascist foot soldiers, and he believes that he is above the law, Lawrence. And you referenced it earlier that he's either mentally ill or, you know, he, he does whatever he wants to do. And either one of those makes you unfit for office. And but that is the status here. He is unfit for office. But I believe that Speaker Pelosi could recensure him. You've been watching him longer than any of us. What do you think it is? Do you do you think your brother is mentally ill? Well, I mean, I think growing up, there were some issues, right? Um, I think he had some issues with uh, telling the truth. We used to call him in our family telling Wendy's. And so Paul was uh, the Wendy teller in our family. I think coupled with that is he doesn't have the requisite skills for this job. He's not intelligent enough. He's doesn't, uh, not a good listener. Um, he, he's immature uh, and insecure. Uh, he doesn't surround himself with people that check his worst impulses and, and ideas. Um, so basically what he's done is he's traded integrity, character, honesty, for power. And uh, power, if he had to steal it, no problem. Power, if he has to try to uh, organize a plot to overthrow the government uh, and steal it that way, no problem. So could he be, you know, suffering from some sort of mental deficiency? Sure. But he also has some character issues as well. And he's traded those character traits that we were taught for power. Uh, as I recall, you first came out uh, with your sister as a family uh, in opposition to your brother's a political for his reelection, basically, in 2018. Uh, you've been saying for a while, as your sister has, that he's getting worse. Uh, what is it like for you as a family to be trying to deal with this? Jennifer, Dave and I feel like we have to come forward, push back against this sort of fascist authoritarian idea that he is you know, right front and center of, but also to clear our good name. Um, We aren't like this. Integrity, honor, character are the hallmarks of what we were taught. And I believe what each of us has in our lives, except for Paul, except for Paul. So it's about confronting the dangers to our country and to our democracy. But it's also to show people that that's not how we were raised and that's not who we are. A lot of time Well, folks, that is exactly right. That is exactly right. I want you to listen to this last video, and then we'll go ahead and talk about 
it. This is about big format patents, and I want you to go to myself. Hey, hey, AVQ, hold on. You got to watch this one first, and then you can take off, brother. Here we go. Check this out. Drug companies really have much more power to set prices as they want. Um, and in theory, you know, insurance companies are supposed to uh, negotiate lower prices. But the way the system works in this country, um, there's this complicated set of middlemen with back and forth rebates, and the prices just don't come down that much. And then finally, the drug companies have become really good at manipulating the patent system. And so what they do is, you know, insulin, I mean, it's, it, you know, their usual argument for high prices is, oh, you know, we're inventing this new breakthrough drug. Right, exactly. Insulin's been around for 100 years. They make incremental improvements, but then they add patent after patent on the ingredients and the delivery system. And then no one can make uh, a competitor and they can pr- charge what they want. Yeah, in fact, the original developers of insulin in 1920, I learned this from our uh, second producer, Alexander Price, who, who told me this today, that uh, that that they wouldn't patent it. They sold the patent for a dollar uh, because they thought it was outrageous to patent this thing. And then Eli Lilly came in. They keep updating the patent so that they could keep the IP. Again, this is not some like, you know, it's not some mind blowing new development. It's a hundred year old drug. And here's the thing that's also wild about this. Here's the cost to manufacture $6 and 16 cents. The cost to purchase $332. They are printing money off the backs of people who literally have no option in order to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and they have no option in order to survive and they are responding by rationing their own care. They don't take the pills when they should. Then they get sick and, and people are literally dying because of this. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing. And yes, the, the inventors of insulin, they thought it would be greedy. They thought it would be wrong morally to, 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 to jack up the prices and have some kind of, you know, monopolistic claim on this drug. They wanted everybody to have it. Uh, quite obviously, that's not the case right now. Quite obviously, that is not the case right now. Now, um, you know, Daniel Ledo, I, I love what you just said there because uh, you know why I love having my conservative brothers and sisters on? Because you give me a reason. You give me a reason to explain something deeper that you wouldn't get elsewhere. Daniel Ledo says, Egberto, drug companies are evil. Also, Egberto says, make sure you get the vaccine. Let's qualify. The vaccines are designed and created by scientists and engineers who don't, uh, who are not part of the, the, the blood-sucking parasitic portion of the, the pharma industry. Good people do good things. I love the engineers that work for Big Pharma. I love the scientists that work for Big Pharma. I love all those people. I love the doctors that work for Big Pharma. But those are not the people that are screwing you. They are inventing at the universities and colleges that we pay for. But Big Pharma are the ones who run the stock market portion of the business. And they screw you all. And Daniel though, is critical thinking. Critical thinking that requires you to isolate these items and know what to fight for. And what the plutocracy is betting on is that they, we, they will keep most Americans stupid. The plutocracy is betting on keeping America dumb so that they cannot segment somebody saying, go get the vaccine, big format or terrorists. Anybody who listens to politics done right, understand that big format or terrorists 
and that the scientists that work for Big Pharma and the universities are good people. Let's get even better. Big Pharma makes around $20 on each dose. Whoa, wow, which costs them just $1 in my friend. You get it yet? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying we paid for the we paid for that and we're still getting suckered. Come on, Daniel Lado. You should be a smarter man. Oh, actually, it's AVQ who put that out. Thank you, AVQ. Uh, it is it is sad. It is sad that that some of us can remain willfully, and I say this with respect, willfully ignorant. Okay? And we have to get over our willful ignorance if we're going to make progress. Today, we are honored to have a very, very special guest. Alison Gaines is a writer, editor, and activist scholar who believes the pen is mightier than the sword. She calls herself on her Twitter page, a womanist wife. You're going to have to interpret that for us a little bit later. Alison is the co-founder of W-E-O-C, Woke. No, that's not Woke, W-O-K-E. That is writers and founders, writers and editors of Color. Alison Gaines, welcome to Politics and Right. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Hey, look, let me tell you, um, I got introduced to your organization by a good friend, an excellent writer. His name is uh, uh, Dominguez, Arturo Dominguez. And um, it was one of the best introductions I've had. I mean, uh, I've been writing for a long time, not as professional as many of the people in your group, but it was just refreshing to see a group of, you know, of, of people writing the way you guys do and having the passion for doing it. Tell me, first of all, a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, um, and I am um, born and raised in the South, but I've traveled a lot. And right now I'm in Puerto Rico. I've been in Puerto Rico a couple of years. Um, and pretty much right now I'm pursuing a PhD in psychology to build off of my master's. Um, and I write every day and I edit and I like to work with and help other writers. And, um, everything I do is through like an activist lens. Well, you know, there's something that you said in one of our meetings and we're going to talk about woke and when, when we meet and all that sort of stuff in a little bit, but there's something that, that you said was striking and it's something that I, you know, I've even incorporated um, as, as well. Uh, I don't know if you know who Tom Hartman is. He told me something similar about writing as well. And when I heard you said, I said, man, I get to get, get, get a bit more discipline as well. You said that you isolate X amount of hours every day that you dedicate to writing something. Talk, talk a little bit about that. So, yeah. So every day I start my day with writing for at least two hours. That way, no matter what is going on in my life, I know that I wrote a little bit. And even if I didn't publish or finish something, I feel like two hours is a good jump off spot to commit to writing. Now, why do you do that? I mean, I I know both of us are activists. I know I do it because every day something happens that I have to talk about. Why do you do it? Like every day, um, white supremacy doesn't take days off. So I feel like there has to be some of us that feel the same way about it. And I wake up and I just know I'm going to find a story that is important enough for me to share with others or, you know, just to educate myself as I educate myself to educate others. So I feel like that's really my motivation of why I do it. And also, like when I try to do it another way and not put writing first, I didn't get much writing done. 
Yeah, but you know, actually, you gave a great segue. You brought up the the mythical phrase "white supremacy," and um, it, it is interesting because here you formed a group called uh, Writers and Editors of Color. Did we really need a group like that? I have an answer, but I really want you to. I want you to expand on that. I feel like yes, because um, we have to understand that um, writers and editors of color have been marginalized and a lot of times they don't have access to the same networking opportunities and connections that um, traditional or white people have. Um, And so I find that the organization was necessary because um, at a time when we're dealing with this racial reckoning and people are coming together, I wanted it to be something that was open for black people, but also people of color because we have the shared experience as being marginalized by white supremacy. I mean, you bring a lot of different kind of writers writing about just about everything in woke. And recently, I on one of your conferences that I was on, every Sunday, first of all, tell us a little, tell us when you guys meet, where you meet, etc. W-E-O-C, woke. Tell us a little bit about right. that first. So you can find us at writersandeditorsofcolors.com. That's where our publication lives. And we meet every Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern, live on Twitter Spaces. And we have a, um, a Writing for Change speaker series. So every week we feature a writer. So we interview them. And then the second half, we have an open conversation about writing. We also have a woke slide workplace. And every other week we either do a skills lab or a town hall. And those are on Google Meet. Those are more private. Yeah, well, well, going back on that, where you talk about in, in being in the right spaces. I mean, I think it is so important what you're centralizing on. Um, I the the journalistic court in this country has done a disservice not to people of color. People of color always knew what has been going on in this country, but I think they've done a disservice to the people at large. And and that disservice that they've done to people at large has to do as well to them not knowing the real history of the country and having most of the writings of those who've experienced these things filtered through the eyes of those who may want to sanitize certain things. Um, One of the things that I... Nobody there is willing to do that. And we're talk, we talk a lot about editors and what the result of editing does. Talk about that and why it is so important that there's this independence that you're creating with your group. Right. So we look at it. Um, some writers feel that when they get edited, especially by uh, by white uh, editors, that oftentimes things that may be important to the story that is related to race are a lot of times watered down, maybe not even intentionally. Um, but maybe as a sensitivity to their audience. But that's why what we're doing is so important, because we don't center whiteness. Um, So we center our experiences as black people and people of color. And we feel like that's important. And I also agree with what you said about it doing a disservice to everyone, because not knowing the entire story and then making decisions off of only fragments of that story can lead to a lot of problems. You know, that has in fact, I I think the situation that we are in right now, the polarization, et cetera, that actually has been ex- not exacerbated, but caused by the ignorance of people. And the ignorance of people come from having had horrendous people. People like to talk about journalism as if it is something sacred. We haven't had real journalism. 
independent folks, what you are doing, what others are doing in that domain are the ones that are really the ones that will make change and also get people to understand exactly what's going on in this country. You, In fact, I want to bring up one particular story that was, um, there are several stories that's always touching to me, right? But there's one particular author in your series that came on and spoke about having been in an interracial relationship. And she said one sentence that really, that I wanted to expand on. She said, 11 years ago, I was willing to go into this marriage. I don't know if five years ago I would have, meaning I would have just thrown my hands up into the air and said to hell with it. Let me just concentrate on. And I think I replied to her saying, I am glad you met him 11 years ago and not today because the education that you are providing and the education that she provided within your group I think was so much more important, not not to black folks or Latinos or whatever in your group, but to the country at large. What do you think about that? I think it is important um, to 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 teach uh, white people. And I do think that it takes a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. Right. And I always think it should be voluntary. Um, because so much information is out there, but I'm one of those people where I write and I do consider myself an educator. So, um, obviously in my relationship, I'm married to a black man, but I definitely respect her for sticking with it, even though there was racism and that she had to kind of help him align his values. I think that that that's transformative because hopefully that will also influence members of his family or people that respect and care about him as well. You know, you just said the magical word voluntary, right? I mean, Right now, what politics done right is all about it. Audiences, right? making sure that and I get a whole lot of flack for I will speak to it. I, I will talk to anybody, anybody. But I am not asking everybody to do the same. I'm saying if you're comfortable to be the one making that change or bring, making that contact, go ahead and do it. But uh, if you're if you don't have the, the if you don't have the patience or whatever, I'm not going to hold that against you because you have a right not to be that way. Correct. Right. And that's kind of part of the point of writers and editors of color is it gives us a space to speak about our experiences and whether it hurts their feelings or whether they love it. Basically, we're free from caring about their feelings in that space. Not that our intent is ever to hurt anyone's feelings, but it's nice having that freedom to not always have to guard yourself, watch what you say so that it does not offend white ears. You know, it's interesting. Now you brought up another point, my friend. Uh, It's interesting that we say we cater our words not to hurt others. What do others say about catering their behavior not to dehumanize us. Explain. They don't really put much effort into caring about our feelings. Like when it comes to, we're talking about the education and we're talking about how learning about racism may hurt white kids' feelings, but no one talks about how it feels to be black and grow up in America and only read one little paragraph about your history. So that's why I think it's so important for us to sometimes stop and just not center their feelings because unfortunately their feelings are already at the center. Yeah, you know, and that's interesting. I tell you, in our program, and in fact, you will have uh, you 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 should have a, a new audience of of probably who knows right wingers as well because I mean we like the idea we don't we don't censor uh, what we talk about we are frank about what we're talk, talking about on all sides left right or anything and I think it is so important for us 
too centralized on, in this case, on the most aggrieved, which is something that isn't done in this country. We are always protecting one class, one hue. And you know what I mean? Go ahead. Yes, I definitely know what you mean. That Unfortunately, since the beginning of this country, it was written into it to provide only rights for white men who own land. So now that we're hundreds of years down the line, we're still trying to broaden what it means to be an American. And I think that a lot of these conversations center about that. And I'm one of those people like you. I don't mind listening to what people have to say, no matter what spectrum. I'm more centered around policies and around solutions to problems. And it's only when those people don't want to address those solutions that I think we run into a problem. But I think that we can do a better job in this country of respectfully disagreeing. Absolutely. And, you know, but, you know, you just said respectfully disagreeing there. That, that's true. But there's something that you can't even disagree about because, I mean, they're, they're just factual. I, Americans don't know. And I, I think, believe it or not, that is a, the real fear of those who don't want to teach about race. And they're calling it CRT. They can call it whatever the hell they want to call it. It's just about telling about history. The reason they don't want history is that I have this, I have this tenet. Most people, period, bar none, are good, but they've been reared wrong. Okay. And it is in that disease that they've had that perpetrates all that goes on. And, and when you start inoculating them with the truth, suddenly they either have to say, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy dehumanizing others, I don't, it doesn't bother me, or they have to say, oh my God, things have to change. Your thoughts on that? It's fight or flight. So either they're willing to run from it and they want to burn the books and they don't want them in their class, or they're willing to, or they just want to fight about it. I think that we have to stop having a war against the truth and against history. Um, the history has ugly truths on both sides. And I think that we need to get more comfortable with those ugly truths because like Wait, let, me, not, let me interrupt you. I want to interrupt you there because you just you just made a Trumpian statement that I don't know that I agree with. The okay. history has on, on both sides. What are the both sides we're talking about? Well, what I mean, I guess what I'm what I mean is that I feel like when it comes to history, there, when I, I'm from the South, so I'm used to growing up with people with Confederate flags flying around and they say the war was not about slavery. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by another side. The right. other side is not legitimate to me, but that side exists. And that right. side is pretty much all that dominates. When in reality, if you even just like objectively read for yourself, the letters that each state made when they left the union, each of them stated slavery as a purpose. Right. So, you know, I guess when I say both sides, I don't believe there should be two sides, but I'm acknowledging that we're living in a country that loves right. both siderism. Right. I just, you know, the only reason I kind of uh, did a little pushback there is I don't want anybody to sit down and, you know, uh, you know, I always tell people I'm willing to discuss. I'm willing to even change my mind when proven wrong. What I'm not willing to do is acquiesce to fallacies at that's, all. That's true. You know, and it's I, like the like the 1619, uh, the 1619 project. Like we're we, we're starting the book club. We're all going to read the book. And you are getting ahead of me, Allison. I oh. want you to I want <laughs> you to properly tell us more about the 169 project. Okay. I want you to properly tell us about the awards that you've won. I want you to properly talk about how you've actually been retweeted by 
I'm getting old. I can't remember her name. Jones. No, uh, yes. Nicole Hannah Jones. Nicole Hannah Jones. So uh, now let, why don't we go ahead and do that? First of all, tell me about this 1619 project that you guys are working on. And it's actually a woke 1619 project of which many writers are participating in. Yes, it's an awesome project. So it's called The Case for the 1619 Project. And when um, the 1619 Project, before the book was released, Nicole Hannah-Jones and several prominent authors, uh, they came out with it and published it on in the New York Times. So basically, it, it, it ruffled a lot of feathers because it said, you know what? Um, let's start talking about when when slavery first started and how the role that slavery played in American society and that it continues to play. Um, and that really ruffled feathers. So we got together. Um, our project manager, Ellie Justice, she was the brainchild behind the um, behold, behind the project. And the she said, one, yeah, let's push back on these criticisms that they have. And I'm like, you're right, because it's so easy to just say, oh, no, they're just saying silly stuff. But I said, no, let's take our time. Listen to what they're saying. Read what they're saying and form responses. So part of the project is we're doing uh, responding to the criticisms. We're doing case studies and showing um, lived experiences. Um, and we are advocating for this project to be taught in school. And now that the book is out, we're going to celebrate by reading it, studying it. And pretty much this book is dedicated to the 30 million descendants of, of, of slaves that were um, in, in America. And so basically, um, it's a controversial topic because like we were saying how there's no two sides to history. Well, this is showing the truth. This is showing the, about what happened, but it's a side that they don't like. It's it, it's a perspective they don't like because they they tried to hide it. So I guess our writing is a way of intelligently, scholarly addressing their concerns about the project so that if someone is interested, but maybe they're on the fence, they might read our case and they might they might agree that it's a proper thing to teach. That is that is that. And I think it was it was actually retweeted and recognized by Nicole Jones. Right. Tell us a yes. little bit about that. Yes. So um, about a couple of months ago, well, we we you know, we tweet at her because we're crushing on her project <laughs> and our, our project is pretty much like um, just trying to defend her project because she she's been through a lot, not like personally, professionally, just she's received a lot of criticism. And um, so I think that she might have appreciated seeing it. We didn't know it could have went one or two dark. She could have said like, y'all are little babies, get away from me. But she seems to um, she seems to like us. And so she's retweeted our stories. Um, and so like, you know, hopefully one day if it was a dream come true, we would meet her one day and tell her how great we think her book is and ask her advice, you know? Well, I, actually, you, you already have a, a medium with a 10 thousand dollar winner in your group from the tell us a little bit about that and that could probably tell her hey if 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 these people have award winners just maybe yes so Hal Harris um, he is the founder of 1865, established in 1865. It's a publication where he shares most of his own work. And he was one of the um, semifinalists for the Medium Writers uh, uh, Writing Challenge. He won $10,000 and they reviewed over 9,000 essays. Um, so we had Hal Harris. We also had Brian, who was a semifinalist and also another writer with us, Kasira Copes. All so we're very proud. Group. All in our group of only about 115. Mm -hmm. We only have about 115 writers in our group. And out of the people that participated, we had three winners amongst us. That is very, a very good moment. That that is actually uh, I mean, that is that that, that is great. But I don't know. I don't know if you've listened to any one of my interviews, but I always have a last question that I like to stump everybody with. And it's simple. Actually, it's on me. 
what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Hmm. Um, I guess, I guess more like what, where do I see the future of, mm-hmm. of these efforts? Well, where so, do you see the future of woke? Where do you see the future um, of what you intend to do? I think that in the future, years from now, Woke will be a nonprofit and we will be able to help young um, and just aspiring writers everywhere, writers who have been marginalized um, and help to amplify their writing and their words. Um, And I think that would be something that I could be proud of if that if it was if it was big and bold. And, you know, I would just be really happy because just the little feeling that I've gotten so far, we're under a year old. So we started. Um, at the at the beginning of January. So we're looking forward to our one year anniversary and we're just really excited about everything going on now and in the future. Well, look, I'm glad to have found you guys because, you know, now I'm as, as a member of the crew. Uh, I, I actually the truth of the matter is I can learn a lot from you guys because you guys are some real writers. This is I mean, uh, you are serious about what you're doing here. So listen, Alison Gain, writer, editor, activist. Womanist wife that we aren't going to get to, but also, most importantly, the co-founder of Writers and Editors of Color. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. We'll talk. Thank you. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics done right dot com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program.